Hey guys, welcome back to Let's Talk About It. I'm Jackie. And I'm Megan. And today we're covering common misconceptions about the Protestant faith. So I'm going to give this one to Megan since, since she's a Protestant and I'm the Catholic. And we will do another episode about misconceptions about the Catholic faith, but this is part one. Yes. So Jackie and I decided that for each of our episodes, we would pick five maybe main caricatures that we often hear about Protestantism and Catholicism. So we kind of like talked this through together and picked what we thought best fit each one. So the first kind of um, misconception or misunderstanding that I've come across when talking to people who are Catholic or Orthodox or just not Protestant would be that the Bible is our only authority. So Jackie and I did an episode in season one talking about Sola Scriptura and kind of our debate around that. And so a lot of this was kind of addressed in there, just kind of the you know definitions of what Sola Scriptura is, what it isn't. Um, but I'll go over it again because I, I still think this is probably like one of the more main ones. Would you say that? Yeah, for sure. And also, we did more of like, not a debate, but like explaining our views more yeah. in that one about Sola Scriptura. So if you want to hear more of why we agree or disagree with it, go ahead and listen to that episode, which we will link below. Yes. So just as a refresh, Sola Scriptura is a theological doctrine that the Christian scriptures are the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. So a lot of times just to our English ears, sola scriptura, we think of just like scripture being the sole authority when it's the sole infallible source of authority. So that would be the distinction. Uh, There are certainly other forms of Christian authority that Protestants acknowledge. We just don't recognize them as infallible sources. So scripture would then be the ultimate authority, I guess you could say. Um, And so some examples of authority As members of a church, we submit to church authority, your pastor, your elders, uh, your deacons. If your church is affiliated with a denomination, the church submits to that denomination. There's um, certain sects of Protestantism, such as Anglican, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. I'm sure I'm missing some. (laughs) And they actually submit to their diocese. There's even more ecclesiological sort of structure of authority there. Um, Even like non-denominational churches, like even like small, more rural ones, um, they often do have coverings. So it's pretty rare, I would say, in my experience to see like a legitimate church kind of just entirely off on their own. And I think most Protestants would see that as Um, having a lot of dangers and not being maybe super wise to have no form of connecting to the larger body. Um, We also see councils and teachings from church fathers and other writings as authoritative. So think like throughout history, we've had um, quite a few references to church history on this podcast, whether it's like Augustine or Tertullian or any of those church fathers, we definitely read their writings. We find those to be very, very, very helpful in the formation of the church, um, just not infallible. So uh, once again, we don't hold to like a capital T tradition. We just have that lowercase. So we also see teachings from reformers as authoritative, but not infallible. So think Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all of those guys. Um, And then we also see current Christian teachers as having authority. 
So I just wanted to read again the definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I grew up on the Westminster Catechism, so that's why it's a little more familiar to me. But it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set out in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So basically, we believe that the foundations for our faith, so things necessary for salvation, like you have to believe this in order to have a saving faith, is laid out infallibly in Scripture. Uh, this like obviously doesn't mean that everything is in the Bible. I mean, we know that there's a bunch of science that's not in the Bible, a ton of history that's not in the Bible, and those things aren't like necessarily untrue. But it's just that everything infallible that we can say for certain is God-breathed, coming directly from the mouth of God, is in the Bible. So this also doesn't mean that we read the Bible literally, or that we don't apply hermeneutical methods, or have disagreements in interpretations. You know, I hear this a lot when maybe someone outside of Protestantism looks and they say, okay, so you believe the Bible is your only authority, and you also believe that everything is laid out expressly for salvation, but there's obviously a ton of disagreement. And I would say, yes, this is why we have different denominations, because, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't expressly, literally set down in scripture. And so there is a lot open to interpretation. And so I think, too, um, a lot of Protestantism obviously comes out of the Reformation, and the Reformation had a huge emphasis on sola scriptura, largely because at the time, the church, there was a lot of resistance and failure of the Catholic Church to properly disseminate the text to lay people. They either couldn't read it or it wasn't available to them. And so uh, it makes sense that that would be a huge emphasis. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't remember that looking back. And so we look now and say, why do you emphasize the Bible so much? It's just kind of because of what um, caused the Reformation in the first place. So we would say that our leaders are not infallible. They can't be solely trusted with the Bible. That was one of Luther's points. And that it's every Christian's duty and responsibility to know the text and learn from it. And ideally, this is under the authority and guidance of a local church. But when church leaders fail, we can fall back on the Bible. Thanks, Megan, for that description and just addressing some of those misconceptions. I actually, so it was my idea that I brought up that we should do this. And one of the reasons was not only hearing a lot of misconceptions about the Catholic faith, but in my journey of learning more about the Protestant faith, although I still don't agree with Sola Scriptura, um, because of Megan and other Protestant thinkers, I understand it a lot more. And I remember um, one of my friends who clearly doesn't understand what most Protestants think about Sola Scriptura, believe, believe Sola Scriptura is, um, was saying that Sola Scriptura, like Protestants then take everything in the Bible literally. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> not quite. that's not what that means. Um, and Dr. Ortland always does this. If you're going to disagree with something, know what the teaching actually is, and then you can actually disagree with it intelligently. Yeah. So, yeah, because I mean, we'll go over this yeah. in, in yours where we're talking about Catholic misconceptions, but the, the difference here, or maybe the disagreement lies not in the fact that 
you know, scripture is infallible. Like we all believe that. It's not, you know, none of us believe that it's the only authority that you could just like live your entire life and never read any other book or something like that. Mm -hmm, Like, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, yeah, I think it's super important to disagree with the actual, actual belief of the person you're disagreeing with instead of a straw man or caricature, which is why we're going through this. Mm -hmm. And I have a question that I think might be a question for some uh, Catholics. So... When you're describing Sola Scriptura, you say that everything that's needed for salvation is expressly or explicitly in Scripture, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I guess some of the questions like we would have, and I guess this would be that Protestants are not okay with having these disagreements, I guess, okay, but certain things like baptism or communion we see across the denominations they have different beliefs about each of them obviously so you would say that it's obviously not ideal that we're not all like in one church and have disagreements because you know we're humans (laughs) but that's okay and that's so how would you respond to that yeah so that's why we have a distinction between something being dogmatic and something being doctrinal and then something being opinion so dogma would be this is like the foundations for salvation so you can't deny these things or you are outside of the faith so these are things that are like very clear like you have to believe jesus was fully god and fully man and came down to earth and died on the cross for our sins Basically like the nicene creed yeah gospel issues um and it's not that those doctrinal points aren't important because they're extremely important and they're very important even just ecclesiologically in how we do church because yeah if you're if someone believes in infant baptism and another person believes in like adult believers baptism it's going to be hard for them to have a service together because they just have different understandings of how it should be run and so it's more of the application of like dogmatic principles may be different and there can be disagreement and I think that is more it's not speaking to the fact that scripture is lacking it's speaking to the fact that us in our sinfulness lack understanding and there's going to be disagreements and I think that's the the hope and the expectation for heaven is to get there and finally have true knowledge and be in the presence of God completely without the um, kind of the blocks that a lot of our sinful nature get in the way and we will be able to have perfect unity and understanding and we see that in revelation when it says every tribe and tongue and nation will be unified and i think that's referring to more than just like race and ethnicity mm-hmm. i think it's a lot of even just within the church disagreements within the church yeah so you would say dogma is expressly explicitly in scripture but doctrine is where there can be disagreement is that what i'm hearing um yes and no i mean yeah this i guess this is very complicated but dogma would be issues of salvific issues so like the fact that god is trinitarian that might not be extremely explicit like the bible doesn't use the word but we would say it is explicit in scripture that god is three persons in the trinity um just like from reading it (laughs) you know he often talks about the fact that i the lord god am one in deuteronomy and yet we see himself referring to himself as we in creation and the fact that jesus 
is clearly um, designated as the Lord. So um, in him talking about, you know, sending the Holy Spirit as helper, that it's like you can't deny that. And to deny it would be to deny the character of God. And Whereas, not be a Christian anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, maybe I believe that women can be pastors. And someone else would say no. Well, we would say even if at the end of the day I'm wrong, it's not that that's not serious, but that's not a salvation issue where I would not be an actual Christian. Mm-hmm. And that would be where all like Catholics and Protestants could come together is on like the Nicene Creed because that's yeah. what or the why Apostles we're still Creed. Cre- Apostles Creed. Yeah. That's why we're all still considered Christians. Right. Yeah, and I can look at Jack and be like, hey, I don't really know what to do with all this Mary stuff, but <laughs> you're still a Christian. <laughs> Great. So that covers Sola Scriptura. Megan, what is the next misconception that you want to cover? Yeah, so I didn't quite know how to word this, but one that you and I have talked about and um, I've kind of heard a few times is just the relation to good works and faith. So that Protestants don't believe good works are necessary for salvation. And then when I say that, I'm like, well, that is technically (laughs) what we believe. But I think a lot of times salvation is kind of used to refer to like the Christian walk. So good works aren't necessary for the Christian walk. And that would not be true. And I think this kind of comes down to another sola. Wow, shocking that that would be where the differences are. Um, But sola fide, which is by faith alone so this asserts that good works are not a means or requisite for salvation so to kind of explain this it's that good works are seen to be an evidence of saving faith but the good works themselves do not determine salvation and obviously i'm referring to like lutheran and reformed protestant traditions because there are protestant denominations that would disagree with that so that's a whole other thing we get get it to, but with like more Lutheran reformed, more common Protestant theologies, righteous works are seen to be the result and evidence of a truly justified and regenerated believer who has received these by faith alone. So the belief is that without faith, we are ungodly and our good works mean nothing. So what this doesn't mean, if I put my faith in Christ, I can just do whatever I want. I would say absolutely, absolutely not. (laughs) If you are a true believer, you wouldn't have this attitude because Christians want to look like Christ fundamentally. Um, You might go through seasons of your life where you struggle with that, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you are being transformed to look more like Christ. And so I love this quote um, by Martin Luther, actually, in his Formula of the Concord. He says, oh, faith is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, so that it is impossible for it to not constantly be doing what is good. Likewise, faith does not ask if good works are to be done, but before one can ask, faith has already done them and is constantly active. Whoever does not perform such good works is a faithless man, blindly tapping around in search of faith and good works without knowing what either faith or good works are. And in the meantime, he chatters and jabbers a great deal about faith and good works. So I love this because it's really like the point of James 1, 22 through 25, that it's faith and good works go hand in hand. They can't be separated. So in James, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it's really not an issue of faith without works, or faith with works, or works without faith, but faith without works is not true faith, and works without faith are worthless. So obviously this was, you know, a pretty foundational debate of the Reformation. It was a debate that brought forth the Bull Declaration, sola fide. And so it's, but it's not between good works on one hand and faith on the other. It's the debate about what that relationship faith has to good works. So namely, do good works have anything to do with our justification before God? So what does this mean? Uh, This is a quote from the Augsburg Confession, which is Lutheran. And they say, our churches also teach that men cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven on account of Christ, who by his death made satisfaction for our sins, the faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. So when Protestants say good works aren't necessary for salvation, what they're doing is they're putting all things in their proper order. Good works follow, they don't proceed. And believers are exhorted to good works, but not for salvation. That's not our motivation. Our motivation is to become like Christ. John 3, 23 through 24 says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps this commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Reverend Christopher Arond, which is another Lutheran reverend, says, Sole fide means that faith is never alone. It always has its object. And when the object of faith is sola Christi, then no works are needed, for Christ has done it all for you. So I liked how uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland put it. He um, said, justification by faith alone, judgment by works. So obviously, God continues to discipline and sanctify, sanctify us. We don't just like get to take advantage for, of grace. You know, in Romans, Paul talks about, shall we continue to sin so grace may abound? By no means. So the point isn't like, wow, thank goodness, like I didn't have to do anything for my salvation, you know, that Jesus did all the work. Like, whew, I guess I can just continue sinning. Like, no, that would not be, that would not be it at all. Um, so a lot of this comes from Romans 3, which is a longer passage, but I think it's really important. Um, and the chapter is called Righteousness Through Faith. So starting in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith into Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And it continues on. And then later in verse 27, it says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So that basically just says what I said, that it is putting it in that order. Yeah, and this is where you're going to see that when I, in my episode, when I talk about how 
they think Catholics think, oh, it's just by your merits or good works that you are justified. That when I explain the Catholic view, that this is where Protestants and Catholics have actually come to a lot of agreement because we both agree that it's by faith alone that we are justified. And that's actually where there's been a lot of unity. So they sound really similar. There's some differences in how the justification plays out throughout one's life, but that core tenet of that it's by faith alone is exactly the same. Humanism. Yeah, so actually everything Megan just said, the Catholic Church would agree with. Woohoo. Uh, so <laughs> we love to hear it. It's just, I, I think where it got misconstrued was Catholics were like, okay, but how that plays out and like obviously how we think you should be living out the faith throughout your life, we put more of an emphasis on receiving sacraments and there probably were a lot of Catholics that were saying it in not a great way or spewing ridiculous things. So then it came out as if it has to be workspace and you have to do these things to be saved. And on the other side, Protestants were so emphasizing the faith that there was a like a misconception that it's oh only faith but (laughs) what both of us believe is that so jesus gives us that faith it's from him and he freely justifies us and by giving him by giving us that faith good works should come from that faith and our good works only come from the grace freely given by god there's nothing we do on our own that we're meriting that jesus didn't give us the grace or the faith to be able to to do those things yeah and I think even in just in this entire conversation of caricatures, it's important to remember that you should judge the other belief based on what they like, what their true belief is, not the worst follower. <laughs> yeah, because there are definitely really there are Protestants. And I think where a misconception comes that I've heard say to me, like, well, I was saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. And there also are Catholics or people from other Protestant traditions that we're baptized so they're like well i'm saved it doesn't matter and that's not what either denomination actually thinks yeah. or there are catholics that are super scrupulous and are like i have to do this i have to do this and this or i'm not going to be saved and god's gonna have this wrath on me and i'm like oh that's not really what we yeah. teach yeah and those people should be corrupted because that's yeah. sad that would be a horrible scary way to live mm-hmm. <laughs> all right the next one is a little shorter don't worry um but it is that church history is unimportant um, and I first wanted to say that, like we were just talking about, there are certainly lay Protestants who know nothing about church history, nor have any interest in it. Not everyone is Dr. Gavin Ortland. Right. Um, <laughs> and I would also argue there are also lay Catholics who are the same. I've talked with some who like know nothing. <laughs> and I think this is just a lot less to do with beliefs and more with individuals. And my heart would be the exact same for both. I would tell them, learn your faith with a exclamation point. If Christ is truly the most important thing in your life, you have no excuse. Um, you don't have to be a theologian or a historian or perform doctorate level study to understand church history. If you can graduate high school, you can learn church history. Mm-hmm. And that might sound harsh, but I truly, I don't think that there should be any leeway for people who have no desire to learn about how our faith came to be and how it developed. I think that if you say that your Christian faith is the most important thing to you, you should know what you believe and where it came from, period. But that being said, there are many Protestants who do have a deep respect for church history, uh, even before the Reformation. 
and every Protestant Bible school and seminary and, you know, even some Christian schools, they'll make you study it. I mean, I only have a bachelor's and I had to take like the church and our doctrines, Christianity and Western culture, systematic theology, biblical theology classes. Like that was just a basic part. Um, growing up, I always had church history classes, even in high school. So there are also a lot of Protestant churches that still follow traditions from the ancient church, especially high church Protestants think like Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, once again. Um, so I, I think they would be like extremely offended if, <laughs> if someone told them they didn't like church history because they do find that very valuable. Um, and Protestants don't reject church history. Rather, they view it as the development of the church as starting in the book of Acts and continuing on. So throughout history, the church has faced heresy, false doctrine, corrupt leaders, schisms, and more. I think we can all acknowledge that. But God has, continues, and will always preserve his church. And although there have been errors and reforms along the way, we can all reject incorrect views of our past and understand that our history is important to know. And I think a great illustration of this is just to look at the nation of Israel in the Bible, who, no matter how bad they got when it came to worshiping false idols and even being, you know, banished from their country and exiled into pagan countries there god always preserved a faithful remnant and i think we see that with his church as well that he, god will always preserve his church it will never go apostate or just completely cease being hmm. yes i think that's probably a common misconception that i know yeah dr gavin ortland addresses a lot um and i think people don't realize because they probably haven't study the church fathers themselves or they've only read certain church fathers because you're gonna find church fathers that say things that are very catholic and agree with what the catholic church says but then you're gonna find church fathers that say things that disagree and that's why the church fathers you know neither of us would see them as infallible because they disagreed with each other yeah that and, would be pretty confusing <laughs> yeah they disagreed with each other they were i mean they were human too and mm -hmm. they yeah, they were not infallible. So it's it's a lot more complicated. They were trying to figure and wrestle through everything also. So it's not just like this one and done thing. If you read it, oh, it agrees with everything Protestants think or like a certain Protestant yeah. denomination. Or, right. oh, <laughs> it agrees with everything that Catholics say, like every church father and everything he's ever said. Like they changed Like there their was minds. a general consensus. Like everyone was like, yeah, here we go. And then yeah, there was it's never, only in modern times. <laughs> there was never a time when everyone agreed with everything or some church fathers went back and forth or like changed their minds. So yeah, it's not as easy as some people would like to lay it out that it all leads to their tradition because that's just not true but i think that's what makes it so interesting and that's yeah. why i always want to encourage people with this church history is so cool it's yeah. so interesting it's so fun to learn about mm -hmm. and if we can just get over ourselves being like oh i'm not a theologian who cares you can read history books like you are more than capable of reading church history and loving it and totally getting it so i think yeah if you're someone who has not looked into church history maybe just try it yeah. um yeah, I can leave you some suggestions. It's it's a really fun endeavor. So, mm -hmm. I think uh, another one that once again we've addressed this in kind of past episodes, especially our one on uh, the Eucharist. But it's just that sacraments are merely symbolic and powerless. Um, and I do want to point out that actually most Protestants aren't memorialists. So most denominations are not memorialists, and even memorialists, like really good ones 
do believe there's grace involved with sacraments. So once again, improper beliefs do exist among lay people, but that's due to poor catechizing and teaching, not necessarily poor doctrine. Um, and once again, a lot of Protestants like Anglicans and Lutherans like put a great emphasis on the sacramental life of the church. So this doesn't really apply to them, even just from an outsider looking in. And I would say there are probably people who do exist in the Protestant evangelical circles who maybe would say something like that sacraments are merely symbolic. Um, I think they would be broadly condemned by the majority of evangelicalism. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, I think most would see that as very, very, very wrong. But yeah, that's really all I had for that one. Yeah, that's a common misconception that um, I think a lot of Catholics have, especially about Baptists, because they are one of the bigger denominations that have I want to say the lowest view of the sacraments, but they don't, what am I trying to say? They're not like Anglicans who are higher church or Lutherans who are higher church that had their sacraments, what they believe happens in the sacraments are closer to the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Baptists are the biggest denomination that I know of that are the most different from the Catholic church and what we think the sacraments do. But even then- Baptists and charismatics. Yeah, even then they still think there's some grace coming from that sacrament being done Mm -hmm. all right guys we've made it to the last one so i left the spiciest for last and it's that mary is unimportant Mm -hmm. we don't care about her Mm -hmm. um and i think that this is really unfortunate but i think this caricature exists because there are protestant lay people who are very reactionary against catholicism i either through misunderstanding Catholic doctrines or they've had maybe bad experiences and they would fall to this extreme, but that has not, nor has it ever been part of Protestant doctrine. And if I knew one of those people, I would correct them. We believe Mary was a very godly person and in many ways a model disciple. I mean, God chose her to be the mother of his son. And when you read the scripture, her humble response to the angel where she was willing to do what the Lord called her to do, should function as an example to us all. I mean, I think we can all look up to that and and yearn for a faith like that. Arguably, she had the greatest faith and obedience of anyone in the Bible or anyone since. <laughs> and that is a huge thing to be obedient to. And we also hold to the theological conclusion of the Council of Ephesus in AD 431 that Mary is the mother of God, that um, title of Theotokos. So Mary is not just the mother of Jesus, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So it's been denounced as heresy to believe that Mary was only the mother of Jesus' humanity. And this title of Mary being the mother of God, don't it's not scary. Like, it, this doesn't put her above God or before God. <laughs> no legitimate Christian tradition believes that. Uh, we don't believe that Mary was sinless or should be venerated. And so I think that would be the point of disagreement that Catholics and Protestants can discuss. Not that she's unimportant. Um, I think one verse that we would fall back to would be Luke eleven twenty seven through 28. Um, as he, and that's Jesus, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So it's that we don't think she was sinless or should be venerated, but we acknowledge that she played an important role in the incarnation of Jesus, which is the pinnacle of our faith. 
And one thing I wanted to address was that Mary is not just an incubator or a vessel or just someone who birthed Jesus. If this was the case, she would not be referred to the mother as the mother of God. Her role is significant, beautiful, and necessary. And Christians who refer to her with these demeaning terms should repent. Because this is extremely misogynistic, unchristian, and condescending way to speak of any past saint, let alone Mary, the mother of God. <laughs> and I think this, once again, just comes out of extreme misunderstanding, misteaching, and misunderstanding of what even Catholicism holds when it comes to Marian doctrines. Um, I actually wrote an entire article for my church around Christmas time about Mary and what she can teach us, or so I can link that down below. Um, big fan. But <laughs> big fan of my own article. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, and I did just want to finally say I think it's unfortunate that Protestants only really talk about Mary at Christmas and Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case for Megan now. So now we always talk about Mary. <laughs> yeah. No, but I really do see this as a failing, and I think it's unfortunately once again just really reactionary against Catholicism in our culture. You know, I think a, a lot of Protestants our former Catholics or had Catholic family members and this can just cause a lot of reactionary actions in our churches and I find that very unfortunate it's just kind of like part of the reality of living in the Christian world post-reformation where there is a schism that there's just going to be reactionaryism on both sides um, I, I do my best to correct people but that's just going to exist and I think it's, it's sad but that I guess what I want you to come away with this is Protestantism at its core does not think Mary is unimportant, even if some Protestants do. Well, Megan, thank you for educating all of us and helping us, (laughs) helping any of my Catholic or even maybe some Protestants who didn't quite understand their own beliefs fully (laughs) because we've all been there on our journey and we're like, oh, that's more fully what we believe. (laughs) Okay. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, our heart in this was to really break down a lot of those caricatures because you like Gavin says, which is so funny because he talks about this a lot too, though. If you're going to disagree with something, actually know what they teach and disagree with it intelligently. Mm -hmm. Don't disagree with a caricature because that doesn't do either side any good. Yeah, because if you're actually disagreeing with the heart to learn and understand, like, why would you be disagreeing with a caricature? Like, we all Uh disagree with that. (laughs) So I think it's just really important when it comes to having charitable disagreement to actually um, argue in good faith. Yeah. That's, like, a big thing for me. If someone's arguing a caricature, it's just hard for me to even respect them as an arguer because it's like, uh, why should I listen to anything you say? Um, I'm working on that. But that's uh, kind of our goal with these episodes. It's just kind of like to really simply break it down in like maybe five examples how you can better understand the other side and actually understand where the disagreement lies, which can be helpful for both people. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to listen because you could be coming into a disagreement with a caricature and you didn't know it was a yeah. caricature. And that's why you just need to listen and hear, oh, no, that's actually what they believe. And that's just respecting your fellow disciple in Christ because if we want to be respectful of all each other well everyone but especially as fellow Christians we should listen to them and hear what they actually believe and I feel like Jackie and I Jackie you can correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like we try to do this with each other like Mm, I never come to you and I'm like so Jackie you believe this Mm -hmm. (laughs) like 
I would rather ask. So is this how, like, am I clearly like, like saying this right? Is this, am I describing what you believe correctly? You know, coming at it with the heart of, you know, humility and with the desire to learn, not, well, this is what you believe and this is why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. No conversation mm-hmm. needed. Mm-hmm. No, that's actually what Megan does to me all the time. All the time. And she's really mean to me and makes me cry. <laughs> um, so that's actually the truth, everyone. Just yep. kidding. We couldn't be friends if we caricatured each other all the time. And no, we're really disrespectful. <laughs> just this podcast wouldn't work and it would also just be useless to anybody listening. <laughs> <laughs> like one conversation in, yeah. we'd be like, well, all right, I'm yeah. going to hang around you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So stay tuned for our next episode, which will be addressing caricatures of the Catholic faith, and it will be the reverse of this. Yeah, yeah, guys, just I think it's important to talk about it so we can better understand each other. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.